Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of Food Focus. Trent and Leighton Kling with you as we talk a little bit about Amazon expanding delivery from restaurants in the Twin Cities area, as well as bottled water potentially overtaking soda in the sales column at the end of 2016. But we begin with Target and their potential produce turnover problem. We spoke of their earnings during the second quarter on the Retail Focus podcast during the News Blitz, and it looks like a lot of their earnings might be hurting in part because of their turnover problem, not only with produce, but also with fresh meats. They're having a tough time getting those off the shelves into consumers' hands before those things spoil. According to sources close to Target, spoiling fresh meats and produce have actually been hurting Target's profit margin. Obviously, if you think of a grocery segment within a retail outlet, you tend to think of of lesser margins when you have those kinds of turnover problems. And so I think with this report, you really need to pay attention to what Target's initiatives are going forward. And when Brian Cornell, their current CEO, took the reins as CEO in 2014, he did state that he wanted Target's grocery segment to be a, a bit stronger. I feel like they haven't done enough to make it happen. And despite really strong merchandising efforts, expansion of their private label brands, and rebranding some of their different items, I feel like it's just not enough. Even the collaboration with MIT's Innovation Lab that we've reported on several times on the Retail Focus podcast, it just hasn't come through for Target. I feel like a lot of people are kind of unaware that Target really even has fresh segments. The stronger grocery areas within Target are for the cereals and dry goods areas. And I don't think that a lot of people are wanting to go to Target as a grocery destination, so to speak. Walmart and Kroger really have those kind of areas taken care of in regards to the competition that Target faces. When you look at Target's revenue, a fifth of their revenue overall is accounted for by their grocery segment. You mentioned their partnership with the Innovation Lab, with MIT and IDEO. One of the things that was supposed to come from that is an ability to show the consumer at which point produce was perfectly ripe. Additionally, they were supposed to have produce discounting plans where they would take a certain percentage off if produce had been on the shelves for a certain amount of time. However, the rollout from those programs has been relatively slow as they're still in the testing stage at a few select Target stores throughout the country. When Brian Cornell, who originally came from Walmart, took over as CEO, he wanted to make Target's grocery segment stronger, and certainly a strong grocery segment is something that we associate with Walmart, but we just haven't seen that innovation come through soon enough. And part of this is due, I believe, to the pricing structure at Target. If you're not at a super Target, most of their produce is sold basically buy the piece of produce. So if you go and buy a nectarine, you're getting charged by the nectarine because they don't have scales in their point of sale systems. And I believe this pricing structure is one of the things that kind of confuses a lot of consumers. Consumers in the United States particularly are used to buying produce like that by the pound. And so they don't know exactly where 49 cents per nectarine fits in with the per pound pricing system. And it's difficult for them to tell when their sales going on because of that. 
Additionally, their sales can be very competitive at Target, but they're facing an obstacle where people don't know when a good deal is actually a good deal, and their everyday prices are kind of expensive. They're never going to beat a Walmart or a Kroger based on price alone. Yeah, I think pricing is a definite issue that they need to focus on. A lot of their sales are actually quite competitive with all grocery competitors, but one of the problems is the location of the produce and grocery departments overall relative to the stores. If you're not a super target, if you're a regular target that's a little bit smaller and a little bit less spread out, you're going to find that the grocery area is kind of in the back of the store, at least in most of the stores. And so you only have one entrance and exit area as opposed to a super target that typically has two. And so if you're coming in through those doors, you're never going to see the grocery department right there. You're going to come into apparel. You're going to come into the one spot area. I think if a person is coming into a Target to get something quick for dinner, I think they really don't like to have to walk to the back of the store or to the very side of the store to get what they need and get out. Whereas if you go into a Walmart, typically most Walmarts now are in the super center format. And so you can go in and you know which exit entrance area has the grocery area tied into it. That's one of the things that they need to focus on if they're really here to bolster sales. But Comparing this to Walmart, Walmart just recently posted their second quarter earnings, and by comparison, same-store sales at Target fell 1.1%, whereas Walmart actually grew 1.6% here in the United States for the same quarter. I think a lot of that is tied in with groceries. I think while it's not necessarily the same customer base that Target and Walmart share, it is seen that Target's actually driven down sales within their grocery segment, while Walmart actually saw growth with a better quality and assortment of grocery items. One of the things working to Walmart's advantage, of course, is simply the volume aspect of it because they do own all of the neighborhood markets and, of course, the traditional Walmarts. It's much easier for them to negotiate a lower price with co-ops and that type of thing. Additionally, Walmart, Kroger, and other grocers throughout the country, you would perhaps include Whole Foods in that conversation, they are very forthcoming about trying to carry produce from local growers and local suppliers, and you don't really see signage to that effect in your traditional targets. They've got a lot of things working against them, and they're behind the eight ball in this regard. Target cannot afford to treat produce and meat as a loss leader. Again, no one is going to come to a traditional Target seeking produce. It's simply a convenience buy for them, and I think the pricing structure certainly helps to suggest that. If Target wants to turn around these areas and increase turnover, they're going to have to try and be a little bit more clear about the fact that not only they carry produce, but that they carry high-quality produce to the customer. It seems like some of the efforts that they've come up with with the Innovation Lab and rolling those out to stores, I think those are newsworthy items that might catch the consumer's eye and might help to turn their turnover program when it comes to produce around. Yeah, exactly. I feel as though Target for right now, they are aware and they acknowledge the problem that they're having in their grocery segment and that they're not really driving a lot of demand through those areas. But 
nothing really differentiates them. You know, that's the thing they're going to have to focus on. And I think their mind's in the right space by partnering with MIT's Innovation Lab and IDEO, but they're going to have to come up with something substantial, something that people can really grasp onto because right now they're losing market share in an area where they've never really had substantial market share. I feel like groceries are the future and Walmart coming up with things like grocery delivery, delivery to your home in certain markets in Colorado and Arizona is just another step forward for them as well as Kroger rolling out their own curbside pickup and home delivery services in certain metropolitan markets. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for Target going forward, and they're really going to have to hone down, either it be on price or promotion, but they're going to have to fix the problem and keep getting their customers excited about their grocery segment. Moving on now to a fairly popular restaurant that actually has quite a big cult following on the East Coast. Shake Shack announced earnings last week and they disappointed with sales growth. Sales growth had been going forward at an extreme pace over the last seven quarters, but it actually looks like they're stagnating. Same store sales for Shake Shack came in at 4.5% versus analyst expectations of 4.8%. But this is all relative because same quarter last year, same store sales came in at a whopping 12.9%. And so already you're kind of seeing the momentum, the fervor around Shake Shack coming to a screeching halt. When they're talking about expanding the number of locations, they are going to be a little more hesitant going forward. But this coming as this week, this Tuesday, they announced an opening of their 100th location at the Boston Seaport. They were really excited about this, Trent. And for it, they had a special promotion rollout for Tuesday morning. Yes, exactly. They were able to give 100 customers at each of the 100 Shake Shack locations a free menu item as a result of this 100th opening celebration. You're right, though. There is a deceleration as far as same shack sales, as they call it. They use the shack terminology throughout their press release that they pumped out. Total revenue, top-line revenue, did increase 37% to $66.5 million, and that's certainly a positive sign because they are continuing to open stores. However, the biggest question surrounding Shake Shack is, as a public company, and given that they've been able to raise a lot of money through being a public company, when is that rapid expansion going to take place? We've seen rollouts of certain products, including the Chicken Shack, which was launched in January, be somewhat botched because they couldn't rein in supply chain issues with those products, and you'd have long periods of time where those products were unavailable. And their most recent limited-time offer, which they noted in the press release, the Bacon Cheddar Shack, which didn't have quite the same supply chain issues. But still, you're looking at only 100 stores for a company that has a ton of excitement in this industry. And really, we wouldn't be so worried about expansion here, except that in and out is expanding at a rapid pace. Five Guys is expanding at a rapid pace, and Freddy's Frozen Custard is also expanding at a rapid pace, and that's before we even get to Culver's, which kind of operates in the same area in the fast food industry. So there's a lot of competition here for Shake Shack. Maybe they don't want to grow as quickly as some of the other companies, but you feel like they're going to lose out on markets if they don't get to actually focusing on growth. 
They still expect to open 18 total company-operated Shake Shack restaurants this year. They've already opened seven company-operated restaurants here in the U.S. through this point this year. So 11 more, you figure, for the last two quarters of the year, and that might not be a fast enough growth rate to try and stem or at least keep five guys and in and out as well as the other burger restaurants we've mentioned from grabbing the majority of the market share. Absolutely. It's one thing for Shake Shack to be a specialty burger joint and to have a really good following, not only on social media, but just for health enthusiasts overall. A lot of their products are made with care and they are really focused on the ingredients within their burgers and their ancillary products. But as you mentioned, one of the things here is they can't forget that they're competing in a space that's becoming extremely tight. Let's not forget that McDonald's has a huge amount of locations. Overall, there are 35,500 plus locations for McDonald's. And this was at the end of 2015. But if you're coming into a niche that Shake Shack really has, you're competing with the likes of In-N-Out. You're competing with Freddy's Frozen Custard. And you're competing with Five Guys Burgers and Fries. And so if you compare their store count, while they were excited about the 100th location opening this Tuesday at the Boston Seaport, you can see by comparison that In-N-Out Burger has 313 locations locations with many, many more in development, 150 plus locations for Freddy's Frozen Custard, and that we had mentioned last month has many more in development, more than Shake Shack currently for the rest of fiscal 2016. And then if you compare to Five Guys, which is a private company, unlike Shake Shack, which is publicly traded, they have close to 1,100 locations now and over 1,500 in development in certain regions within the United States. And so I think overall Shake Shack can be true to themselves and keep focusing on quality. But at a certain point, if there's a Five Guys or an in and out on every single corner in every big metropolitan market that they're looking to target, they're not going to succeed going forward and take any significant share of the market. Their cult status is only going to take them so far. I know you mentioned that they were a cult favorite on the East Coast, much like In-N-Out is a cult favorite on the West Coast. But that only goes so far, and the novelty wears off after a short period of time. You've got to have something that will retain people's attention. And like I said, maybe Shake Shack doesn't want to expand that quickly. Maybe they want manageable growth, which is fine. And we talk about manageable growth being a positive all the time between this podcast and the Retail Focus podcast. But the real issue for them is they are not a privately held company. They are a publicly held company, and they do have that fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. And if you're a shareholder of Shake Shack right now, you are seeing five guys in the windshield sprinting off into the distance, and you're seeing the other companies like Culver's, like In-N-Out, like Freddy's in your rearview mirror, and you're getting a little bit concerned. You'd mentioned that the stock did drop on the results that they put out, 12.5% from the share price prior to the earnings call. Still, the stock is trading right around $35 per share as we record the podcast and has a very good P.E. ratio of 93 times. They have a $1.28 billion market cap as well. So they're a company that the numbers would suggest in the growth sector, and they are driving home revenue per store. Their per store revenue per quarter is pretty remarkable, right at around six hundred dollars to $700,000 per location. 
production per quarter, which is great for a restaurant in this space. Still, you're concerned about the lack of quick expansion. And then you're also concerned about just the limit of menu items in the future. They had so much problem releasing the Chicken Shack earlier in the year that you become very concerned about them releasing any other ancillary product, as you mentioned, because they take so much time and care in selecting the ingredients. Chipotle seems to have done a pretty good job over the last five to six years of being able to both care about the ingredients and achieve expansion. So you have to wonder where the problem and where the hang-up is taking place with Shake Shack. For not having eaten at a Shake Shack, I am a fan of the overall concept that they bring to the table. Again, they are focused on quality and sourcing their ingredients responsibly and really focusing on being transparent about that. If you go to their website, it has a really good layout that explains all the ingredients and where a lot of them come from. But just if you compare the slowing of the same store sales within Shake Shack, just to put it in perspective, McDonald's, a much larger corporation that isn't as focused on quality and the ingredients of their products, McDonald's same store sales for this last quarter were around 2%. And so I feel as though if Shake Shack reports this time next year that same store sales were below 3 4%, I think that's a bad sign for Shake Shack because, again, they're in a growth mode. Their stock is indicative of that with that 93 times P.E. ratio. Analysts and investors are expecting a lot from Shake Shack, and to already curve the momentum like this is a bad sign. The one bright spot I did find on this earnings call is that they are opening those 18 additional locations throughout the rest of the year, as you had mentioned, Trent, and that is actually above the expectation that they had for growth this year by about two or three locations. So that's good. But when you're talking about such a finite number of locations and and growing at such a small pace, as you had mentioned, they do have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders to exceed expectations for at least the next few years or so to get back into a normalized P.E. ratio. And I feel like they need to do a lot more, not only on the promotion front, but to expand their number of stores. And if that means taking out more debt, then that's what they need to do to sustain this growth. Well, we move on to Amazon as they've announced this week that they plan on partnering with dozens of restaurants in the Minneapolis area to offer restaurant delivery to Prime Now users. For those that are unaware, Prime Now is a program that offers delivery of groceries to your door. They've already actually partnered with a liquor store, Certix Liquor and Cheese Shop, to offer liquor delivery within a two-hour span for free or within an hour for $7.99. The difference here, though, is that there will be no delivery fee for the end user, and this is another great way that Amazon can add value to their Prime memberships by bringing in food like this. Absolutely. This is something that Amazon has really been bullish with throughout the last few years. They've really been focusing on ways that they can deliver groceries from retailers, ways they can deliver alcohol. They've already delivered alcohol with certain services within New York and Seattle markets. And so with this, you're actually seeing something that is free, that is really giving added value to the Prime customer. All you need to do is download this Prime Now app, set up delivery within your area. And these areas in include high-density neighborhoods like Uptown, Dinkytown, Calhoun Isles, and Linden Hills. They're looking to expand these and also expand to different markets. But if you see the estimated average wait time at 
39 minutes, you can see that this is really an exceptional value. This is about the time that other competing services have. We talk about services like Grubhub offering sometimes less than 30-minute wait time. But if you compare this to Amazon's alcohol delivery that's already in the Minneapolis area, and like I said, parts of New York and Seattle, you're seeing that a delivery fee is actually associated with orders that take an hour or less. $7.99 is the delivery fee for those alcoholic selections. If you have a selection that's within two hours, it's actually free for that. But you're seeing, again, 39 minutes. I think that's just a stellar program for Amazon to roll out. And just, again, something that gives everyone added value when they hold a Amazon Prime membership. A lot of people feel that the food delivery space is an area that could see explosive growth over the next few years. And one of the benefits Amazon has in their back pocket is just name recognition. So when you look at Amazon versus perhaps a local program or even other companies that operate within this space, including Grubhub and, and Seamless, to name a couple of others, Amazon, of course, has that larger name recognition. And in addition, they're not charging you any money on the front end. Amazon, although they haven't released their pricing structure, likely gets a little bit of money from restaurants on the back end of this transaction, and they actually prohibit restaurants from charging more to the Prime Now customers than they would otherwise charge their restaurant customers. So there is that certainty that you'll get charged the same through Amazon Prime Now as you would if you went to the restaurant. But their advantage, too, is that they've got the infrastructure built up, and this is just another way for them to be able to use that already existing infrastructure to continue to make these systems profitable for them. If you're not using these systems, for example, a lot during the evening hours, this is a way to kind of mobilize those and drum up business. And of course, it will certainly help for those that maybe can't escape the office and would like to order lunch delivery service in. So it's very rare to see any delivery service not charge to the end user. Although you could argue that customers of Amazon Prime do pay the $99 yearly rate, but they also get a number of other perks and benefits here as well. Leighton, do you see them possibly growing in the food area, their benefits to their Prime and Prime Now customers? I definitely think they'll be growing and looking to grow in all areas. And so that includes restaurant and food delivery within the grocery sector. But I think for right now, Amazon is going to take it a little bit slow. This is probably not going to be a profitable program for Amazon. But what they do bring to the table is exactly what you said. They bring brand recognition and a sense of trust. If you're getting something delivered to your home or business, you're going to want to have to trust the people bringing it or at least the company that enables you to order it. And so I think that's what Amazon does here is they've made their name in e-commerce as being the market leader with service and reliability. And that's what you want if you want food brought to your home or place of work. And I think that that's really what they're trying to capitalize on here and not really make it profitable for the time being. But Amazon knows that they have their name and they have their recognition. And so I think thousands of people are going to latch onto this, even those who haven't already tried the services at those competing companies such as Grubhub, Seamless, and Caviar. Those are the top three ones right now 
in the United States, but that landscape is always changing. And I think Amazon sees this as a time of infancy in this area. A lot of analysts see this market as a multi-billion dollar industry going forward, and Amazon wants a piece of that. And so I think if they take a, a little bit of a hit in the short term in terms of profitability and getting their service out there, I think that's going to be fine as long as they see this as a more long-term investment. And as you said, if they bring in this system and it works well, they can expand into other areas and do so a little more aggressively down the line. And with that, we move on to our last story for this edition of the Food Focus podcast to a new report that came out from the Beverage Marketing Corporation. This report states that between years 2000 and 2015, consumption of bottled water has increased 120%. So what this report is basically saying is that bottled water is looking to overtake carbonated drinks in the coming year or so. This comes at a period when carbonated beverages during the same time period saw their demand fall 16%. So again, between the years 2000 and 2015, bottled water has increased 120% and the demand for carbonated beverages within that same time frame has fallen 16%. Trent, what do you think this has as far as implications on the overall consumer and those beverage companies that have been so tied in to soft drinks for so long? I think a lot of the beverage companies, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, for example, are well cognizant of this change in consumer attitudes. When you look back at the last 30 to 40 years, you're seeing a trend that's slightly downward with soda and especially over the last 15 years, carbonated beverage consumption has fallen 16%. During that same period, as you mentioned, the growth of the bottled water industry has increased by a significant amount. And I look to three reasons for this. The first reason is health awareness. More and more people are being diagnosed with diabetes. More and more people are being educated that perhaps drinking sugary carbonated beverages not the best thing for your health overall. You know, over the last 12 years, I've helped to coordinate a luncheon where essentially all these area high school coaches where I live come together for a particular day to meet with area media. And at the beginning of when I first started coordinating this, we'd get soda probably at a three to one ratio to water. So we'd have three parts soda, one part water available to the coaches. This last year, the three to one ratio was intact, but it was just swapped. We had three times as much water available to coaches as soda. We ran out of water, ended up having soda left over. So that kind of tells you among that crowd, at least, how much that health awareness has kind of seeped into the consciousness. The second reason, I believe, is cost. When you look at the price of, let's say, a beverage like milk, over the last 10 to 15 years, really the price of milk has remained unchanged. But when you look at soda, the price of a 20-ounce bottle of soda now is anywhere from $1.50 to $2. You can no longer walk up to a vending machine and get a 20-ounce bottle of soda for just a dollar. Likewise, the can of soda in the vending machine, you might be able to find it here and there for 50 cents. Most places will charge you 75 cents or a dollar for a can of soda. When you compare that to purchasing a 24-pack or a 36-pack of water, which is likely to be 3 to $4, Water, of course, is going to cost the consumer a lot less. And there are people that might say, well, bottled water is way more expensive than tap water. And a lot of environmentalists will criticize the bottled water industry. But that brings me to the third reason why you're seeing bottled water become 
more popular than soda. And this doesn't really have anything to do with soda's shrinking demand. But it's that the relative overall quality of tap water in the United States has declined precipitously over the last two decades. And in fact, the Environmental Protection Agency forecasts that the nation's water quality infrastructure needs about $384 billion in repairs through 2030. I don't see a lot of repairs being made in the state where I reside to the water system. The state where I reside can barely keep highways functional, much less water systems. And I know when I moved to where I currently live, I couldn't even brush my teeth with the water. It had such a terrible taste and a lot of people will complain about rusty water coming out of their taps as well. Now, whether that's on the city's end or the county's end or their own end, the bottom line is the water infrastructure here in the United States isn't all that great. So bottled water, even though environmentalists might complain, is a necessity in some areas where tap water just isn't of very good quality. If you have someone who lives in a city where their water tastes too much like chlorine or their water has algae issues, or in some cases, as has been popularized certainly by the news, if you've got lead in your drinking water, then bottled water is pretty much the only option. I will add this, though, and this is why I would take this data with a little bit of the grain of salt. The numbers from beverage marketing include HOD, or home and office delivery systems, which have seen kind of a mini revival over the last few years, as well as bulk delivered water and one and two and a half gallon sizes in stores, as well as in-store fills. Those like the type that Glacier Ice or Culligan make available in grocery stores, including Walmart neighborhood markets and Kroger stores, as well as your neighborhood grocery stores or smaller regional chains. So all of that water is included in this overall data. So it's not quite as urgent as it might seem for the soda industry. But now, Leighton, I'll throw this back to you and ask you the question, what can the soda industry do to help stave off this onslaught of bottled water? Yeah, it is a little bit interesting because Coke and Pepsi on their earnings reports here every quarter, they really neglect to have listed the percentage of bottled water sales as the total amount of revenue of their business. But I think that they do see this come in and I think they've adjusted a little bit. You see a lot of flavorings within different water offerings within their bottled industry. But I think that you see a little bit of desperation too. You're seeing a lot of trials with new flavors and soda and those types of things. And then also a huge push, a continued push for flavored drinks such as Gatorade and Powerade and other energy drinks. So I think those two are going to be scrutinized in the future as having a high sugar content and potentially unhealthy for the consumer. And so I think when they see these studies coming out, one by the CDC saying that 29.1 million people or 9.3 of the U.S. population have diabetes and that potentially one third of all adults by the year 2050 could have diabetes. I think this is a warning sign for not only the consumer, the general public, but then also these massive companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi that are leading the way in soda sales here domestically. But I think, as you mentioned, the more education that happens, the more consumer policies change, like mandates on sugar content within the bottled industry, I think you're going to see that number actually come down and not really have the implications that we're seeing the CDC project. Again, this is a big deal, but I think a lot of this demand for the water is also something that you mentioned in those bulk delivery services. And I think that those 
public disasters like the Flint, Michigan lead problem and others that people are now seeing throughout the country are a, a huge cause for the increased demand of bottled water. And I think it is going to be a problem in the long term because even though those public water systems are going to get fixed in the long term, people are going to lose trust that their municipalities are doing what it takes to provide clean water. And so I think trust is an integral part of this. And I think that's going to be hard to adjust to if you're a company that's been so dependent on soda sales for so long. Overall, I think that people do understand that recycling is important and that this creates a lot of waste. So I hope that there's at least another initiative there because environmentalists have long criticized the beverage industry, claiming that a bottle of H2O is 2,000 times more expensive than tap water, but it also creates a large amount of waste. I know the gym I go to, it doesn't have recycling services. And so every day you see hundreds of water bottles within a varying amount of trash cans that people just dispose of without giving it a second thought. So I think there's a lot of different public safety issues here and long-term issues when you're thinking about just the sheer amount of trash that water bottles create. But, but again, as you had mentioned too, is the EPA is forecasting a massive amount of repairs that are going to be needed within public utilities and infrastructure overall in the next 20 years or so. And so I think you combine all these things. I think the overall demand for water and water bottles is only going to go up. People are desperate to get clean water and to know what they're drinking is safe for consumption for not only them, but young ones. That was one of the main issues in Flint, Michigan, was the fact that a lot of these schools only had tap water. And so they were worried about the safety of the children attending. Yeah, and you make a very good point regarding the amount of waste surrounding bottled water if you do not recycle those bottles. And I get the argument that it is 2,000 times more expensive than tap water, although that's not necessarily the case where I live or other places where I've lived in the past. But at the same time, if tap water is an unpalatable or undrinkable alternative, that's basically like saying, well, you could get dirt for free. Why would you order any other type of food? Obviously, if your tap water is insufficient in some way, shape, or form, you're going to go towards bottled water despite the fact that there are risks involved with the bottled water. So in order for soda to reclaim, and I don't ever think soda will necessarily gain in terms of overall market share or gain in terms of sales. In fact, they've had 10 straight years of consecutive year-on-year declines in traditional soda volumes in the U.S., according to Adam Fleck, who's an analyst with Morningstar. But if you're going to see less amount of money spent on bottled water, then you're going to have to see some sort of repairs in infrastructure. And I just don't see that happening, at least in the short term. Usually infrastructure is the type of thing where if it's broken and absolutely cannot get used, that's when it gets fixed. So I think you're going to see the problem get worse before it gets better. And that does bring me back to the point, of course, that the numbers that are provided in this report include those home and office delivery systems, which don't include a ton of waste because those containers do get reused. Really, the only waste there you might have is the carbon footprint of the trucks. As far as the soda industry is concerned, though, how do you go about trying to market to an increasingly health-conscious group of people? We've seen businesses, including Coke and Pepsi, trying to stress that balancing 
everything you eat and balancing activity and work and play and all of that is is good and essential for life but there is really no scheme under which it is healthier to drink a 20 ounce bottle of coca-cola than it is to just drink a 20 ounce bottle of water yeah just as a final point here i think that it is an interesting contrast from the marketing that we've seen in prior years to the marketing that you've seen now so even the large soda producers are now saying that some of their sodas specialty sodas are made with real sugar and this is as opposed to the high fructose corn syrup that you see in a lot of sodas nowadays but you'll see that suppliers are saying that they use natural flavorings as opposed to artificial flavorings and artificial colors within their sodas and you're seeing some of that with the Pepsi Crystal that we had talked about on last week's Food Focus podcast and that they're maybe trying to appeal to an audience that doesn't want any food colorings and they want to feel like they're taking in something that's more pure as far as a soda. So it still contains the same amount of flavor per se, but it does not have anything bad that you would typically see in a conventional soda. As a final point here, it is estimated by the Beverage Marketing Corporation that by the end of 2016, 12.6 million gallons of water will be consumed and 12.4 million gallons of carbonated beverages. So this could actually happen a little bit before 2017 when bottled water takes precedence over carbonated beverages. And that brings us to the final segment of the Food Focus podcast. We recap every week's podcast by giving you one item each that we tried out that's a little bit new to the food marketplace. And Leighton, we'll begin with yours. Well, Trent, it was kind of an experiment, but I ended up going to a Burger King to try something that we had actually discussed this last week. A new rollout from Burger King is the Whopperito, something they're spending a lot of marketing dollars on within ad campaigns on television and social media. You're seeing a fast craze, people saying that it's kind of something that should be on a munchie menu. But I ended up going to a local Burger King where I live, and I tried it out, and to be honest with you, I feel bad now that I betrayed my beloved Chipotle. It comes in at 570 calories, 26 grams of fat, 11 of those saturated fat, and not that many sugars, though. So we were talking about the overall general concern for the amount of sugar intake now, and it came in at 7 grams for the sugars there. But overall, the taste wasn't that bad. I did feel, again, a little bit guilty after I finished it. I felt like I could have eaten a little bit more, but the taste wasn't all there. There wasn't much in terms of spice that I expected. It was a little bit bland, but overall, I think it's a fair offering for its price point. Again, it was $2.99 for the Whopperito at Burger King, and I, I suggest people try it. If they're trying to find something that's at a lower price point within that certain niche, within the fast food category, I say give it a try. All right. Well, I want to mention a couple of things in this space. The first, I just want to give a shout out to a very excellent item. It's not new to the food marketplace at all, but it's actually a Dusseldorf mustard sold by Coop's Mustard Company. I had this on recommendation from a friend. I actually ordered it on Amazon Prime. It was about $12 to order six bottles. It was a little more cost effective to order six bottles, but I'm glad I did because the flavor profile of this mustard is amazing and I could eat it on pretty much 
anything I have at the dinner table or for lunch. It is excellent on everything that I've tried it on. Now, as far as what our listeners might find maybe more interesting, I went to Taco Bell and tried their new limited edition food item, a cheesy core burrito. Now, there are two different iterations of this. I did not try the crunchy. I tried the spicy cheesy core burrito. As many of our listeners might have figured out by this point in the podcast or by listening to the Retail Focus podcast, I've been battling some sort of a plague over the last couple of weeks, and so I was hoping that the spicy version of this burrito would clear out my sinuses. And it did because it had jalapeno peppers on it. I actually went to the website to order it and subbed out chicken for their seasoned beef, which also dropped the calorie count down to 540 calories from 570 calories. So as with your menu item, not the healthiest thing you could get at Taco Bell, just like the Whopperito isn't the healthiest thing you could get at Burger King. But it's also got some red sauce and rice along with sour cream on the outside portion of the burrito. And then on the inside portion of the burrito, and I say the inside portion, although my burrito didn't really retain that cheesy core. It just kind of all smashed together, but the inside portion of the burrito contained the jalapenos, the nacho cheese sauce, and then a three cheese blend that comes with the spicy cheesy core burrito as well. Honestly, although it tasted okay, I think it was just a little bit too cheesy for my liking. I could feel it sticking to my intestines as I digested it on that day, and I feel like I would recommend something else at Taco Bell You can order it fresco style, but that kind of undermines the point of getting the spicy cheesy core burrito because you can get fresco salsa instead of the cheese that would otherwise be on the burrito. But not my favorite menu item. If you really, really, really like cheese, that's fine. But honestly, the commercial for this cheesy core burrito has a gentleman taking one of these burritos to a fondue party, and I much rather would have had the gorgonzola fondue that the others were having at the party in comparison to this burrito, not my favorite Taco Bell menu item. Yeah, and I kind of warned you that you might come away with that conclusion. What was the price point on that? That's a very good point that I forgot to mention. If you ordered the regular beef cheesy core burrito at my Taco Bell, it would have been $1.99, but with the chicken, it was an upcharge to $2.79, and it was not necessarily a larger burrito than your standard issue bean burrito or even your standard issue chicken burrito. There wasn't all that much in terms of contents there, so in terms of getting the most bang for your buck, I would say you know the chicken burrito or the bean burritos, your traditional food offerings there at Taco Bell would probably be a better bet. But as much as you can give me a hard time for trying the cheesy core burrito and stepping outside my comfort zone, I can give you a hard time for trying that Whopperito and turning your back on beloved Chipotle for one day. Absolutely. And I I guess we can both feel as bad, equally as bad that we tried those different offerings at the Taco Bell and Burger King. All right, well, that'll do it for this edition of the Food Focus podcast. A reminder, you can follow us online on Twitter at The Food Focus or visit our website, retailfocuspodcast.com. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast delivery service. And if you haven't done so, check out our Retail Focus podcast, which will drop next Wednesday. On next Wednesday's edition, we'll talk about those new and improved Walmart earnings as well as other news from the retail landscape. Until then, so long. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. 
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.